Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. We're going to be in the book of 2 Kings tonight as we come to the penultimate lesson in our series through the Kings. Tonight and next week we'll conclude this series and then picking up into November we will do um, three weeks of a series called Another Gospel and we're going to look at two, no, three false teachings Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Prosperity Gospel and then for one of those weeks we're going to watch a documentary called The American Gospel which kind of goes hand in hand with the prosperity gospel that's what it's about so we'll watch that documentary and then the last week we'll close out with the prosperity gospel the word faith movement as it's been called so mormonism jehovah's witnesses prosperity gospel three of the most challenging and far-reaching cults and false teachings in our time so come back in november for that as we close out the year so after next week then we only have those three other wednesdays where our four Wednesdays, I'm sorry, before it's over. And then we have our children's musical on December 7th, and then we'll be done till January, all right? Looks like in January, I'm going to pick up and do a series called Heaven, based on a book by Randy Alcorn. So there's a Randy Alcorn book called Heaven, and this comes with a study guide. So I'll put those study guides out for purchase, and I'll also put the books out for purchase if you want to read along. And we're going to do, I think it's a nine or ten week study on the doctrine of heaven. So all things heaven. So that will be interesting for all of us, I'm sure. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Kings chapters 18 through 21. So we sort of look at the final days of the kingdom of Judah. If you were with us last week, we looked at the final days of the kingdom of Israel and the fall of Israel to the Assyrian Empire. And so this whole time we've been kind of getting towards these events, the fall of Israel, the northern kingdom, and the fall of Judah, the southern kingdom. Tonight we're not going to read about the fall of the southern kingdom, but we're going to see sort of the prologue to what will take place in our study next week when the southern kingdom falls to Babylon. But we do see uh, this week is an episode of God's deliverance, God's deliverance from uh, Assyria. Assyria has uh, encroached into the northern kingdom. They've already taken Israel, and now they're coming to Judah. And we're going to see how God delivers Judah from Assyria. We see familiar... That's going to drive me crazy. Let me fix that real quick. There we go. We see familiar patterns like the prophetic cycle. We're going to see that kind of prophetic cycle again as God blesses his people, gives them victory, gives them success, and we think all is well, except they turn around and go back to idols and God promises punishment through a prophet yet again. That prophetic cycle. We also see familiar patterns of warning. Familiar patterns of warning as we see the kings who, uh, quote-unquote, we've seen to this point, do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see the prophets promise coming judgment and punishment for the people. 
At the end, we're going to see God declaring irreversible judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah. So as we, as I said last week, circle the drain in these last little episodes in the books, we're going to get to the kingdom of Judah. And this is significant because Judah is, uh, it's the favored kingdom because of David. And we know that all ten tribes except for Judah and then uh, Benjamin were in, in the south in uh, in Judah, the ten tribes were in the north in Israel, and God has completely wiped them out. Not just exiled them, but remember last week he scattered them, and then in their place put back in all these various uh, nations and people groups. So the northern kingdom is completely obliterated, never to really be seen again in the same way. The southern kingdom of Judah has been favored to this point, and we'll see even in the judgment that God brings on them how he still favors them because of the promises he made to David. Big picture this week, God fulfills his promises to his people and brings salvation as they cry out to him in prayer. God fulfills his promises to his people and brings salvation as they cry out to him in prayer. So in chapter 18, a very nice little outline this week. Each, Each point is its own chapter. The first point tonight, Assyria attacks Judah. Now, remember last week, it's the kingdom of Assyria, the empire of Assyria, that took Israel. Uh, We see this king raised up in Judah named Hezekiah, and he is a rare good king, but we see these threats still loom. So Assyria has taken Israel, and now they're moving south into Judah. But let's look first at this first king we come across, King Hezekiah in Judah. And let's look at the first eight verses of chapter 18. First eight verses of chapter 18. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the, sight, in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So Hezekiah, we have a rare good king in Hezekiah. And although these threats from Assyria still loom, we see something different about this, quote, report card of Hezekiah. Remember in those patterns we've seen with every king, there's always a report card. They do what was evil, they did what was right, they did what was evil, they did what was right. And remember every time, even those that did right in the eyes of the Lord, it's always kind of uh, backed up with this, sort of caveat, though they did not tear down the high places or though they did not tear down the altars. 
what is different about the report that we see of Hezekiah? Not only did he do what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walk after the ways of his father David, but beginning in verse 4, he does what none of the other even good kings before him had done, in that he removes the high places, break da- breaks down the pillars, the Asherah, and he broke in pieces this bronze serpent, whether it's tradition or the actual one Moses made, whatever it is, they've set it up and they're making sacrifices to it. So even with the good kings we've seen to this point, we always see that little backup. They were good, but they did not tear down the altars. They were good, but they didn't tear down the high places. Here with Hezekiah, we see not only was he a good king that did what was right in, his, in the sight of the Lord for himself, but he also took care of his people by removing these idolatrous practices from them. And we don't read that about any of the other kings that, that lived. And the author makes note of that, doesn't he? He was better than all the kings after him, and he was better than all the kings before him. So it's interesting that here in this, these closing scenes for the kingdom of Judah, we see the best king they've had since David. The most righteous, the, most, the wisest, and the one who has torn down the most idols. So I've said uh, as, as in terms of the threat of Assyria, they, they've taken Israel, they've completely obliterated this, the northern kingdom of Israel, and now they have moved, verse 13, south to attack Judah and King Hezekiah. It says in verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So not only are they on the offense and not only are they at the gates, but they're taking all the fortified cities. It seems that they're winning. And so Hezekiah, in uh, sort of his stress about the situation, seeks out the Lord. But in the middle, between him seeking the Lord and between the attacks, the initial attacks of Assyria, we have this little episode with this uh, servant of the king, Sennacherib, named Rebshakeh, And he mocks Judah's trust in Egypt and in God. Look down at verse 21. Rabshakeh, that's that's my way of saying it, so that's what we're going to say it. Verse 21, behold, Rabshakeh says, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. So if you remember, a couple kings ago, there was this treaty made with Assyria. And uh, I can't remember the, the king that had sold, I think it was Ahaz, had sold basically Israel to Assyria as vassals. We are yours, you can have what we have. He gave them the treasures from the temple and basically was selling Israel's soul for the protection of Assyria. But now Assyria has turned on Israel and uh, Assyria, Assyria has turned on Judah. Remember, Israel had turned to Egypt too. And that's what made Assyria mad in the first place. The kingdom of, uh, of Israel had turned to Egypt for protection and had begun to give honor and money to the king of Egypt so other, uh, as opposed to the king of Assyria. And so that's why Assyria has come in and taken Israel and now we see the similar thing happening in the southern kingdom of Judah. Seems they've turned to Egypt for protection. Maybe they're giving them money or offerings in order to have, them, uh, have their protection militarily. And Assyria comes in and says, through this servant Rabshakeh, he says, uh, will you trust in Egypt because they're a broken reed, a broken staff of a kingdom that pierces any hand that leans on them. But he also attacks God and attacks their trust in God, verse 22. So even above Egypt, if you say to me then, will we trust in the Lord our God? Is it not he, Rabshakeh says, 
whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now the Lord did not speak to Rabshakeh and tell him to go take the land. He's mocking Israel's God saying, just like you've trusted it in Egypt and they're going to fail you, your trust in your so-called God is also in vain because we're going to take you. And he says it in this sort of artistic way. We have, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can find 2,000 riders to put on them. The point being, you don't have 2,000 riders, and we do. And so what are you going to do now that we're at your gates? There's nothing you can do. So Rabshakeh mocks Judah's trust not just in Egypt, but their trust in God as well. But then in verses 31 through 32 we see something else take place and I want you to listen uh, and you just tell me in a minute if, if anything sounds familiar and where it sounds familiar from look at uh, chapter 18 verses 31 through 32 this is Rabshake still talking and he's talking now to the people of Israel he says or people of Judah sorry do not listen to Hezekiah for thus says the king of Assyria make your peace with me and come out to me then each one of you will eat his own vine and each one his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water from his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Does any of that language sound familiar? Where, where does it sound familiar from? I'm kind of giving you the answer. Where, where does it sound familiar from? Can you tell me what the Lord has said before that sounds like what Rabshakeh is saying here? The promised land. There you go. Oh, the Garden of Eden. All the promises the Lord makes that says live or die, choose me and live, go against me and die. Uh, back in Exodus chapter 3 verse 17, he promises Moses at the burning bush, go get my people and I will take them into a land flowing with milk and honey, abundant, prosperous. And we see these images of grain and water and vineyards and milk and honey and olive trees. And it all should remind us of the promises the Lord has made to his people about a land. And he also said, I will take you to a land like your own. Deuteronomy, chirp, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19 The chapter and 30 got mixed together there somehow. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. We see that similar promise from the Lord. I will take you into a land. This time, though, we're given this choice, and I think you might know this. It's at the very end of the book of Deuteronomy, and Moses is talking to the people, and he says, See, I've set before you two ways to live. You know this? Uh, Choose life that you may live. Uh, In other words, if you obey God and follow him and worship him, you'll live in the land and you'll enjoy all of its prosperity. But if you turn against the Lord and rebel, you will die and the blessing will be taken from you. So do you see how Rabshakeh is kind of giving this counterfeit promise to the people? Come with me and I'll take you to a land. He might as well have said flowing with milk and honey. 
with fig trees and water. And he even says there in verse 32, that you may live and not die. Sounds a lot like the words of God promising his people their own land. And so what we see here is this sort of worldly, pagan counterfeit to the actual promises of God. God had told his people, I will be your God, you will be my people. I will give you a land flowing with milk and honey, prosperous and vineyards and fig trees and water, and you will be my people. You will live and you won't die. And now we have this pagan foreign king calling out to the people, not to the king, but calling out to his people, don't trust in your king or your God anymore, follow me, and I will take you to the promised land, and I will make you live and not die. And so in this way, whether he knows it or not, Rabshakeh is mocking the promises of God. It's interesting also that in the book of Micah, the prophet Micah, who ministered during this very time, and if you have that chart, remember Micah's right there in the middle of this, this episode with King Sennacherib. Micah says that very thing in Micah chapter 4, verse 4. Part of his prophecy about the coming day of the Lord, when the Lord restores his people and saves his people, one of the very things he says is almost this exact phrase from verse 31. Each of you will eat of his own vine, and Micah says will sit beneath his own fig tree. But it's interesting that this pagan servant uses the very words of God to tempt the people to go after a counterfeit. Is that not so often... Satan's tactics, getting people to turn away from the promises of God to a counterfeit. And it's exactly what he did in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? He said, uh, you will not die if you eat this, this fruit. God just knows that when you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And so he tempts Eve to disobey God not outright saying, turn your back on God and sin and come after me, but with a counterfeit promise. And the same thing is happening here for the people. And we're going to see at the end of this episode tonight where the people's allegiances truly lie. But at least for now, the Lord delivers Judah from this onslaught from Assyria. God defends his people and God defends his name in striking down this wicked king, Sennacherib. Now we have Hezekiah facing certain doom from the kingdom of Assyria. And in chapter 19, verses 1 through 4, Hezekiah, as the righteous kings always do, turns to the Lord first. And in verse 1 of chapter 19, as soon as Hezekiah heard it, these threats from Rabshakeh on behalf of Sennacherib and Assyria, as soon as he heard he tore his clothes, that's a sign of lament and repentance, covered himself with sackcloth and went down to the house of the Lord. And then he sends some of his servants to the prophet Isaiah, the very prophet Isaiah who wrote the book of Isaiah, who in verses 6 through 7 assures Hezekiah of Sennacherib's demise. Look in verse 6 of chapter 19. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. Isaiah said to these servants, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. And so you have this promise from the prophet Isaiah 
as they seek after the Lord's counsel and seek for the Lord's help, Isaiah assures them that victory will be given to them. And not just that, but Sennacherib himself will be cut down in his own land. But, as we've seen before, Rabshake, this sort of puppet mouthpiece for Sennacherib, uh, continues his mockery of God and his promises. Uh, in verse 8, uh, the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush. Behold, now notice, notice what's beginning to happen. The king heard, what did Isaiah say would happen? He said he would hear a rumor now the king heard something concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush. Behold, he has set out to fight against you. So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of Assyria. Now I want you to notice the escalating language here. When Rabshakeh first started his threats against Judah, he was telling Judah not to trust king Hezekiah. But now, in sort of this fit of uh, anger over this other conflict that could happen with another king, he, he bypasses the people of Judah, and now he's talking straight to the king, King Hezekiah. Now, at first it was, you people, don't trust your king Hezekiah. But now he's telling Hezekiah to his face, do not trust your God. Verse uh, 11, Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Reseph, and the people of Eden, who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sephavarim, the king of Hina, or the king of Eva. And you see what, the, what this spokesman is doing. He's saying, where is your God to save you? None of these other nations' gods save them. None of their so-called worship or sacrifices to their gods save them. So Sennacherib and Assyria must be mightier, mightier than all the other gods, including yours. So not just Judah, don't trust your king, but Judah and King Hezekiah, you can't trust your God because none of these other gods have delivered their nations. Your God will not deliver you. But in verses 14 through 19, Hezekiah remains steadfast and trusts in the Lord, not just to take care of Judah, but he confesses God's sovereignty over all nations. So we've seen this several times throughout the stories in the kings, haven't we? Where these other nations and other kings have a false concept of God and the gods. Whereas they might have thought that gods were territorial and that you have your God for your kingdom and we have our God for our kingdom. And they were content to say that your God is real and lives and he has power for you, but our God has power for us and so on and so forth. Israelites were different although they oftentimes went into that kind of thinking through their idolatry, the scriptures told them there is only one true and living God. And look what Hezekiah confesses beginning in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim. Now, notice he, where he first begins. You are the God of Israel. But you are enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God 
the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. You see how Hezekiah's theology informs his prayer and it informs his trust. Not just you are the God of Israel, please deliver us. I hope you're stronger than their God because that's the way the other nations thought. Maybe our God is stronger than yours. Maybe yours is stronger than ours. We'll see when we have a war. The Israelites were different. Hezekiah knew the truth. God, you're not just the God of Israel. You're the God above all the earth, above all the heavens, above all other nations and all other kingdoms. So because of this confession of faith in God, God's response to Hezekiah's steadfastness Again, coming through the prophet Hezekiah, or the prophet Isaiah in verses 20 through 31, is this promise once again that God will defeat Assyria from before Judah and he will defeat Sennacherib. Uh, Let's just look at here verses 29 through 31, the last part of Isaiah's prophecy here. This shall be the sign for you this year. Eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So regardless of what happens, King Hezekiah Isaiah says that there will be a remnant from Judah that is saved. A remnant from Judah that survives. But even now, God still promises the end of Assyria in this conflict and the end of Sennacherib. But what is behind God's promises in verse 32 through 34? Again, remember how the the author is always reminding us of the core of the promises of God. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Verse 34 For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. This time, King Hezekiah, I will defeat the Assyrians and I will send Sennacherib away the same way that he came. But it's not for you, Hezekiah, even though he's a good king, right? He's good, he's righteous, he's just, he's torn down all the altars and all the false gods. But even at that, God doesn't say, I'm going to do this because you've been so faithful. God says, I'm going to do this for my own sake and because of the promise I made to David. And so just as we started the book with the promise to David, And every time we see a good king, we're reminded they walked in the ways of David. Here again, we have this reminder, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 13. Remember, I will put one of your sons on your throne to reign forever in justice and righteousness forever. And here God reminds Hezekiah of that very promise. Not only will I defeat Assyria this time, and not only will I defeat Sennacherib this time, but I still remember the promise I made to David. And there will always be an elect remnant from the tribe of Judah that will survive whatever happens, not because I love them so much, though I do, but because of my own namesake 
and because of my promises to David. And in verses 35 through 37, because of that rumor of the other conflict in Cush, King Sennacherib indeed does return home. And while he's worshiping at the altar of his false god, uh, verse 36, and Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, Adramelech, and Sharazer, his son, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Uh, what becomes of Sennacherib? He dies. Not before God completely wipes out the other army. Look at verse 35. That very night, in other words, after God had just promised these things through Isaiah 2, Hezekiah, that very night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies, or there were dead bodies all around. So what becomes of Sennacherib? He's killed at the altar of his false god by his own sons. What becomes of his army? completely nearly wiped out by the angel of the Lord in one night. I'm always reminded, there's so, so, so many times in the Bible, and we were talking about this with our men's breakfast study in the book of Daniel. <clears throat> you remember the book of Daniel and Belshazzar's throwing his big party, and he's basically throwing a party for himself and how great and wonderful he is, and he brings out all the cups and utensils from the temple that they took uh, when Babylon took Judah. And he's basically glorifying himself until, remember, God's hand appears and, and we see the hand writing on the wall where that very phrase comes from. And what was, the, what was the meaning of the writing except this very night your kingdom will be taken from you? I thought about the parable that Jesus tells of the rich fool who had so much grain and so much harvest. Well, I'm going to put this all away and I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because I'm so rich and I'm so successful. And God says, you fool. Tonight, tonight, your soul will be required of you. And what will become of all your might and all your riches? And hear the same thing as Rabshake and all the Assyrians and Sennacherib mock God. Where is your God? Who will deliver you out of our hands? The other gods failed. Your God will fail too. How dare you trust in your God? We will conquer you anyway. And then in one night, that very night, the angel of the Lord brings destruction to the army of the Assyrians and then a humiliating end to the life of Sennacherib. We are painfully reminded of the main theme of the kings, that none of these kings is the one perfect eternal king that God had promised to David. Because as we come into chapter 20, even though Hezekiah has been righteous and just, and even though God has given him this success against the army of the Assyrians and against Sennacherib, we're nevertheless reminded that he cannot be the one perfect promised king that God promised his people because we begin to see flaws emerge in Hezekiah's reign. To this point, it's been relatively successful. Actually kind of flawless. There's not been one time where it's been like Hezekiah did this or Hezekiah did this, as we saw with even the other good kings. But now we begin to see flaws. We begin to see cracks in the armor. 
as Hezekiah tests the Lord and he tests the prophet Isaiah. Because in chapter 20, Hezekiah has fallen ill. He's sick. And at first, the prophet Isaiah comes to tell him, no, you will not recover. But upon hearing that news and that he's about to die, Hezekiah calls out to the Lord, turns to the wall, begs God for mercy, and God catches Isaiah as he's leaving and says, go back and tell him he's going to live 15 more years and he will see the end of the Assyrian Empire. But in verse 8, you think that'd be good enough, don't you? The, the prophet comes back and says, the Lord heard your prayer. He's going to give you mercy. He's going to give you 15 more years. Verse 8, Hezekiah said to Isaiah, and you can almost hear the suspicion and the distrust, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? And I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? Now, they're there's standing here on the steps of the palace, it seems, and, and there's a shadow being cast by the sun uh, from the two, from the prophet and from the king, down the steps, and there's going to be this miraculous sign that the shadow will either come back ten steps or go forward ten steps. And Isaiah leaves it up to Hezekiah to tell him. Now, first of all, the prophet comes and says, the Lord heard your prayer, you're going to live 15 more years. The audacity then of the king to say, okay, that's great, but I need a sign. Of all that God had done for Hezekiah to this point, this great military victory he had just seen, his greatest enemy literally destroyed by the Lord and by an angel of the Lord, and yet here's this simple promise from the prophet, the same prophet who promised that other victory, but he doubts it. He says, I need a sign. I need a sign. But even then, when God says, I'll give you a sign, Isaiah says, shall the shadow go forward 10 steps or go back 10 steps? Verse 10, Hezekiah answered, it is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen 10 steps. Rather, let the shadow go back 10 steps. Now, Isaiah does not reprove him. He doesn't rebuke him. The Lord doesn't rebuke him. But you can see the unbelief. Can't you? you can see the distrust, the suspicion. And Hezekiah has to stop and think, now, wait a minute. If the shadow just keeps going forward, that's the natural way it's going to happen because the sun is going down, maybe behind us, and the shadow's being cast, and the farther down that sun goes, the further that shadow's going to go out until the sun goes down. So that's the easy thing, Hezekiah says. Let's do the hard thing. Let's give the Lord a real test. Let me see a real sign and bring the shadow back. But it happens, and God promises him through this sign that he will indeed live the 15 years and see the victory that God promised him. But through all of it, we see that Hezekiah has begun to doubt the Lord. And he's doubting here the words of the prophet Isaiah, the same prophet who told him all the other victories would take place. Not only that, but Hezekiah opens the kingdom to Babylon. Just as we see his distrust in God's prophet and God's word and God's promises, now we begin to see him distrust God's protection. What other allies did Hezekiah call on to defeat the Assyrians? I mean, what other army did he have to rely on to fight this battle for him? One angel of the Lord in one night struck down 185,000 Assyrian troops. And yet here, beginning in verse 12... 
Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent envoys, envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them, and he showed them all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, and all that was found in storehouses. Now, we don't need to read too far into this to see what the motives of the Babylonians were. They heard that Hezekiah was sick, and they were not intending to send to get well present, hoping that Hezekiah would actually get well. Right? We know later what's going to happen between Babylon and Judah. There was no good intentions here, no good motives. This was not a good faith present. In terms of you know, 1920s, 1930s gangster movies, they were casing the joint. And Hezekiah helped him do it. He opened up. Can you imagine? Look at all this stuff I have. Look at all my silver. And look at all my gold. And look at all my riches. And we know what's going to come. And so we see how stupid this was. They heard that he was sick. And they were seeing how sick. They were seeing how weak. And they were seeing how vulnerable the kingdom of Judah was. And they were thinking, hey, just a few years from now, this is going to be a prime target for our assault. And we'll get all this gold and all this riches and all this silver from this kingdom. Isaiah heard in verse 16 that this happened. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day, you, you know what Isaiah is saying, all that stuff you just showed, all those people from Babylon, guess what? It shall be carried to Babylon and nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, Why not if there will be peace and security in my days? And you hear the, just the weak, spineless leadership now of Hezekiah. That's fine. I mean, he actually says that's good. That's fine. That's good. I don't care. I'll be dead anyway. Now, we say that about a lot of things. You know, we look at our world, we look at politics, and we see how things are going, and, and I tell Anna and Lily, I don't tell Lily, doesn't comprehend these things, but you know, talk to Anna about things and how things are going to be when she grows up and the things that she's going to have to watch out for, and we talk to our young people and our youth about the, the problems they're going to face and the increasing challenges that a secular world will, will press upon them, and sometimes we take comfort in the fact, right, well, I won't have to worry about that, I'll be dead anyway. That's one thing when it's just you, right? But when you're the king of an entire nation, a king that, that God had put in that place, a king that represents the kingdom of God and God's promises to his people, to say, you know what? I don't really care what happens to me or these people because I'm going to be dead anyway. We see Hezekiah's distrust, his disbelief, and now we see his abject weakness and failure as a king. Hezekiah is uh, spoken to by Isaiah, and Isaiah basically says to him, what you've done here is stupid, <laughs> and it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. Just as you've invited these Babylonians into your kingdom and showed them all your treasure, they're going to come to your kingdom, and they're going to take all your treasure, and they're going to take your sons with them. So we see at the end of it all, no matter how good, 
And no matter what the report card is, I mean, you don't get that many report cards that say he was better than all the kings after him and all the kings that came before him. Nevertheless, at the end of his life, we see that he cannot be the promised king of God because he ends the same way as every other king before him has ended in verse 20. Now the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought water to the city, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Hezekiah slept with his fathers and Manasseh his son reigned in his place. You know the movie Groundhog Day? In the movie Groundhog Day, and he wakes up every morning to uh, like six o'clock to uh, "I Got You, Babe," Sunny and Cher singing. That's kind of like the, the, what's it, these patterns just kind of remind us of that. It just be, and and especially with Hezekiah, just begin, when you begin to think that the story is changing, you know, Bill Murray he keeps thinking that he's progressing in the story, that something's changing, something's different. Nevertheless, six o'clock, I've got you, babe, Sunny and Cher. It's the same thing with these kings. As good as it gets. And as much as we think that we're about to turn a corner and see something different, and this is the turnaround we've been waiting on, and you, you hear the repetition of that phrase come in, just like that alarm clock, don't you? Now the rest of the acts of the king of Hezekiah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he slept with his fathers, and another king rose up and reigned in his place. Unfortunately, that is the last high point for Judah. Because beginning in chapter 21, verses 1 through 9, we see King Manasseh. And we don't have to wait very long into verse 2 to see that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. According to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out from before Israel. So there's that reminder again. The Lord has already driven this out and now it's back. The re-Canaanization, not just of Israel, but now of Judah. For... He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. I mean, how do you go from Hezekiah who has this shining report card who did what was right and he tore down all the altars and all the high places and returned Israel or Judah to the worship of the one true God. And now you have this complete reversal, this devastating reversal of all that Hezekiah had done. Not just as some of the wicked kings did, tolerated this false teaching or false worship. Not just as some of the good kings did, tolerated it and left it. But King Manasseh enables it. And he builds high places and he builds altars, not just in the high places, but in the very house of the Lord. He builds these false altars and he sacrifices his own son, that abominable practice of child sacrifice that the worshipers of Molech practiced, now practiced, presumably in the very house of the Lord. And so in verses 10 through 15, because of this final act of rebellion on Manasseh's part and the part of the kingdom, God promises certain judgment for Judah. Isaiah has already said this once, 
Babylon's going to come, take all your treasure, take your sons. You're going to go somewhere else. But verse 10, the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, unnamed prophets here, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and had done these things more, more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And I will stretch Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria, over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria, and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Now, again, God's got style. That's some language. I'm going to wipe away Israel and Judah and Jerusalem like you scrub off a stain from a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them to the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt to this day. This is not just a new thing for Manasseh. God says, I have been struggling with you people since I brought you out of Egypt. Since I said, I will be your God, you'll be my people. Since I gave you these promises, since I gave you the law, and I said, obey me, follow me, trust me, don't worship them, don't do what they do. You've been doing it ever since, and it hasn't stopped. It's only gotten worse. And now God says, I'm going to bring it to an end. Well, Manasseh dies, and Ammon reigns in his place. Ammon is wicked also in verses 15, or sorry, in verses 19 and 20. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, did. He walked in the same ways. And in verses 20 through 23, there is a slight rebellion against Ammon's wickedness. Uh, look in verse 21. He walked in the way which his father walked and served the idols that his father served and worshiped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. So now this seems to be something more too. Not just are we worshiping the false gods alongside of Yahweh. That's what they've done to this point. But it says he abandoned the Lord, his God. He turned his back, not just worshiping Yahweh and the other gods, but now it seems completely given to idolatry. Verse 23, the servants of Ammon conspired against him. And put the king to death in his house. Now we're not told why they conspired. It could have been political. But the context seems to make it seem as if they were angered by his sin and his wickedness. And his idolatry. They knew it was getting them into trouble with God. And so they wanted to put an end to him. And so they kill him in verse 23. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son reign in his place so there's a slight rebellion against Ammon's wickedness but we see the true allegiance of the people though there's this small band that rises up against Ammon and his idolatry and his rebellion the rest of the people of the land are okay with what's going on and they're so okay with it they they kill the very folks that killed Ammon and they put his son in his place who continues to do the exact same thing that his wicked father did. So we see now the heart of the king, as is so often the case, has led the heart of the people. And not just has the king abandoned the Lord his God, but now the people have abandoned God. 
So within these four chapters, we, we sort of see the arc of the entire story of the kings, don't we? We see a high point. We see obedience. We see righteousness. We see justice. We're reminded of God's promises that he will have a king in, 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 in on the throne of David forever that will reign in righteousness and justice. But we're also reminded that none of these kings are that king. And we're also reminded of the great sin of the people and their kings and the consequences of sin and idolatry and false worship. And now it seems it's all coming home to roost. God is responsive, though, in all of these things to the faith and repentance of his people. It doesn't fail in the Bible when the people turn to God in true repentance and faith. He hears them. And while judgment might still come, God shows his mercy to those who trust him. God is responsive to the faith and repentance of his people and these kings. This kind of true faith that the kings and the people exhibited is manifested as they put their trust in the Lord. When faced with trials and war and conflict or plagues, we see the righteous kings. First, notice every time that happens, the author reminds us immediately, as soon as he heard it, he inquired of the Lord. He went to the prophet. He wanted to know what God had to say. He immediately went and prayed to God. We see God responsive to that faith and responsive to that repentance as the people and these kings show their trust in him. This faith is ultimately based not just on their, not on their goodness or their righteousness, but on God's certain promises. God shows his mercy and grace to his people not because they're so good, they're not. Not because they're perfect, they're not. But God shows his mercy and grace because of his own grace and his own mercy and his own commitment to his own glory and the promises he made to David and Abraham. We see here that the Lord is the one true God. Yahweh alone is God. There is no other God. There are not gods of the nations the gods of the Babylonians and the gods of the Assyrians. There is just the one true and living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the entire universe, the one single true creator, living, most high God, who is the ruler over all other kings and all other kingdoms. In fact, it's because of this one true living God that there is other kingdoms and other kings because without him raising them up, they would not exist. And we see that he also casts them down as he wills. In this picture of God as the one true king of the universe, we see the one hope of the Old Testament. The one hope that's woven throughout the entire story of the kings. That this kingdom and this rule and this authority of the one true God would be manifested. In other words, that it would come to earth. That the prayer that we say in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that that would be made visible. It's what the apostles, the disciples are asking as Jesus is ascending to heaven. It's what they're hoping to see when they say, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? 
Is this the time when we see your kingdom and your rule, not just in the heavens as reality, but manifested here on earth? Is now when that happens? Remember Jesus says, not now. It's not for you to know the time of the seasons. Be my witnesses. And the angels say the same way that he went up, he'll come down and he will reign forever as king of kings and lord of lords. That's the entire hope of the Bible especially here in the Old Testament, that we will see that kingdom and that rulership and authority of God manifested in the earth. This will mean salvation to the faithful. We see that through the prophets. The remnant, the faithful, the repentant will be spared. Joel says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul quotes that in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, but it's from the prophet Joel. That on the day of judgment, when God unleashes his fury, not just in the end times, but here for Judah, when he unleashes his judgment through Babylon and through Assyria with the northern kingdom of Israel, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. There will be a remnant that repents and trusts God and obeys him. And we see that even in the exile in Babylon. This will also mean judgment for the scoffers. Those like... Rabshakeh and Sennacherib and the Assyrians who mocked God and challenged him and tested him and mocked the people of Israel, we see that their end will be very much like that of Goliath. Remember how he mocked God and how he mocked the armies of Israel. And David comes out there strong and bold and brave and says, Who are you to talk to the God of Israel that way, you uncircumcised Philistine dog? I love that. And that with one stone, kills him, chops his head off. Just like that angel who killed the 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And then Sennacherib lay humiliated at the base of the, the altar of his false god. The day that Jesus returns and ultimate judgment comes, there will be judgment for those who mock God. And... This is one of those tensions for us Christians that while we rejoice in that day, we want that day to come for God to be vindicated, for for him to have his vengeance and, and show his wrath and show his justice. We also weep for the lost and reach out to them with the hope of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. There should be a tension here as we long for the day of judgment and justice and we, we, we feel that righteous indignation against sin and wickedness and rebellion against God while also weeping for those who will suffer this judgment from God. I hope you feel that tension. Because if you're you know, too far one way or the other, it's those ditches I'm always warning you about. Watch out for the ditches. Because you can go one way over here and be absolutely giddy about the day of judgment to the fact that you take delight in the destruction of sinners. And then you can go too far this way and be too compassionate and too gracious and say maybe there is no judgment at all and everybody will be okay. There's a tension in Scripture always between the mercy and the wrath of God. Not an unhealthy tension, but a tension in his attributes and his perfections and that he's love and mercy and grace and peace and kindness. But he's also wrath and holiness and righteousness. And on the day of judgment, we will see both the salvation of the faithful and the judgment of the scoffers. When we come into the New Testament, we see the object of our faith revealed to be the Lord Jesus Christ. That that just as God had made these promises all along in the Old Testament, 
and people were saved as they trusted in those progressive promises of God in the Old Testament, we see the one object of our faith in the New Testament, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. I remind you of this verse, that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. They're all fulfilled in him. All the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. And if I could circle and star and underline and highlight and bold and all caps that word all, I would. There are no promises of God that are not fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes on the scene, I'd left out the chapter here. It's Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. I think it's in your handout. One of the first things he begins to preach is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the the very first sort of words we hear out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Matthew in terms of preaching is that message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what Jesus is saying? I am the king of God's kingdom and his kingdom is here in me. That's where Jesus begins. The kingdom that you've been waiting on. The manifestation of God's rule on earth. That which you've been longing for through all the kings is finally here, Jesus says, in me. Though we're reminded that none other than God is king of kings and lord of lords. We We don't read in the Old Testament of some other figure or some other person that rules over all the kings of the earth? Who does Hezekiah say rules over all the kings of earth? Yahweh, God alone. And yet when we come into the New Testament, Jesus has no problem saying, the kingdom is here and it's here in me because I'm the king. And John, when he sees Jesus, he sees this name given to Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords. Revealing Jesus as the one sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Just like God comes in judgment in the Old Testament, bringing salvation and judgment at his coming, Jesus will bring salvation to his people while also treading down the wicked in judgment. As we talk about God's judgment and his salvation, I hope that you leave here tonight with that tension in mind. I know many of you have lost family members, lost children, maybe grandchildren, lost brothers, sisters, moms, dads, grandparents, I don't know, co-workers, classmates, we all know lost people. And I hope that you leave here sort of feeling that tension between compassion and kindness, but a compassion and kindness that compels you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15, or 2 Corinthians 5, compels you to implore them to be reconciled to God. Paul says we implore them, we're we're pleading with them because of the truth of his coming judgment 
and because of our love and our compassion for them and because of God's love and compassion for them, so much so that he sent his son to die for sinners. We implore people, Paul said, to be reconciled to God. As the old preachers say, before it's everlastingly too late. The prophets of the Old Testament held out that message to the people. Choose God and live, deny him and die. Obey him and be blessed, rebel against him and be condemned. We hold out that same choice to people every day. Hopefully those lost people in your lives have heard the message of the gospel from you. And if they haven't, go home and do it tonight. Text them, call them, talk to them tomorrow at work. Don't let the hour pass before you tell that person about the mercy and grace that they can find in Jesus and warning them of the consequences if they don't. That's the message of the Old Testament. God is coming in judgment, but he's also coming in salvation. Which one will you experience? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this night. Thank you for this study. And the kings, help us to see through all the wicked kings and all the good kings that as wicked as they are and as good as they might seem, you have sent your one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, to rule and to reign over heaven and earth and over your church forever. Help us today as believers in him to look to him, to worship him, to honor him, to obey him with our lives, that we might tear down every high place and every false altar and every idol, and we might put Jesus in its place, that we might not sacrifice to any other so-called God, but we might be living sacrifices to you, which is our spiritual and reasonable act of worship. Help us, God, to worship and serve only you, to turn away from every idol and every rebellious thought and every sinful thought and deed. Help us to worship and serve you because of the wonderful promises that you've given us and have fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.